0: I'm Aaron Henkin. This is the Maryland Curiosity Bureau. I want to start this week's episode on a note of full transparency. If you're familiar with the show, you know that each episode is inspired by a question from a listener. Uh, Folks, submit questions for me at wypr.org slash curiosity. You can also go to that site to vote on which question you want me to report next. It's all very uh, democratic and on the up and up, uh, except this week, full disclosure, I'm breaking that rule and taking a question from someone who has an inside track and the uh, right and ability to pester me about whatever he wants at any given moment. He's also a, a relatively recent transplant to Maryland and a, a genuinely entertaining guy. Uh, Dad, say hi. Hi. <laughs> Uh, my sister, uh, Becky is here too. Hi, Becky. Hello. Okay, dad, I want you to, uh, say your name and your question. My name is Sid Hinkin, and my question is, how did jousting ever become the state sport of Maryland? An excellent question, Dad. And uh, the state sport of jousting is indeed a weird but true fact about Maryland. I'm sure this is very exciting news for you to discover uh, now that you and Becky are official Marylanders. Uh, Listeners, my dad and sister Becky uh, moved here to Maryland from Michigan last year. And Dad, I think it's fair to say uh, you guys are big fans of like the Renaissance Festival and medieval times and stuff like that, where jousting is, is showcased front and center, Yes. Every year for the past 10 years. I should say you're also a Latin speaker and a collector of medieval manuscripts. This is a fascinating era for you, it seems. Well, I'm rather old. Those were new when I got them. (laughs) Welcome to my dad's sense of humor. I am taking your question about jousting this week because there's an event happening this weekend uh, where I think we're going to find the answers you are searching for about Maryland's official state sport. We are going to hop in the car now, and I'm going to take you guys to Kingsville, Maryland to attend an official meet of the Maryland Jousting Tournament Association. You guys ready for this? I am. Yes. Are we going by horseback? No, Dad. We're going to take the car. Uh, all right, so here we are. We just got out of the car. We're in uh, Kingsville, Maryland. My dad and sister are diligently putting on their sunscreen. I think we've got everything we need. Let's. Uh, you guys ready to take a hike and figure out where the horses are?
1: Sure rings are hung, the track is clear.
0: Charge, or night. Tucked away here in a little meadow at Jerusalem Mill Village Park, the Maryland State Jousting Tournament Association is underway with its first official event of the season. And uh, it is hot, 90 plus degrees out today, so attendance is sparse. It's an intimate crowd, pretty much. Just the jousters and their families underneath the shade of some tents, cheering each other on as they take their turns on a grassy track that's rigged up with wooden arches and speed-measuring electronics. Now the kind of jousting that's happening here is not like what you see in the movies. No one's dressed up in armor, just comfortable riding clothes. And uh, no one's trying to knock anyone else off a horse. The Wooden arches on the track are suspending little rings and the name of the game is to spear these tiny targets.
1: So you have an 80-yard track from timer to timer, three arches with a ring ranging from a size of an inch and three-quarters diameter to the size of a lifesaver, which is a quarter-inch.
0: This is jouster Michaela Patrick. She's 24 years old. She started jousting at age three.
1: You have your trusty steed and a lance. Some people use pool sticks. Some people use an old broom. Handle, anything will work as long as you can get it through the ring. It's a lot of hand and eye coordination, is the main thing.
0: This is Michaela's dad, Michael Patrick. He's competing today, too, at age 51. Mr. Patrick's been jousting since he was 10 years old.
2: You gotta better trust your horse
0: in order to concentrate on the rings.
1: It's just, it's a thrill, really. Um, You get excited each ring you get.
0: This is another Michaela, Michaela Miller. She's 23, and when she competes, she goes by the honorific title, the Maid of Newcastle.
1: And as you progress, the ranks get smaller and the competition gets a lot harder. You take the motion of the horse out. When a horse extends their stride and levels out, then it gets smoother.
0: Bob Enfield is today's most senior competitor. He's been riding since he was nine years old. He's now 64.
1: If you take pictures sometimes, you'll see you're way out of the saddle or you're real close to the saddle. And that's when the horse's feet are on or off the ground. When on the ground, you're this far out of the saddle. When his feet are up, you're just barely clearing the saddle. So you're taking all that motion out when he's running underneath it because you'll get pictures where all four feet are off the ground. The most difficult thing is keeping control of the horse and focusing on the rings at the same time because sometimes the horse just wants to do what it wants and that's not what you need it to do. <laughs>
0: Jouster Amber Farnsworth is 18 years old, and today her horse definitely did not do what she needed it to do. Amber got thrown off her steed, but as they say, she got right back on that horse and tried again.
1: It's a whole lot of fun. I love all of the sport, the running, the prepping. I love it all. It feels so good to run down the track, especially when you get
0: three rings. You can't get three rings without smiling at the end. Amber, by the way, started jousting when she was two. There aren't any jousters that young out here today, but close. You're four years old, and your name is?
1: Maverick.
0: Maverick, four years old, and you just uh, did a jousting competition. You did great. You look great out there. Congratulations.
1: Thanks.
0: What advice do you have for me if I'm going to joust? How do you do it?
1: I ride on a horse, and I wear a helmet. And I keep my eye on the wing.
0: You're with this young jouster. Let me have you introduce yourself. I'm Chris Houston. I'm Maverick's dad. Just bring him out here and let him ride and have a good time. He was jousting with what looked like it was uh, one half of a pool cue. Is that what he was using today? Yes. (laughs) One thing that's becoming clear here is that if you're going to learn jousting, you're probably going to start really young, and you're going to learn it from someone in your family. In the final round, 64-year-old Bob Enfield took second place he was beat by his 24-year-old daughter, Marley. The two of you just squared off in a dramatic uh, family versus family uh, competition. You came out on top. Congratulations. How does it feel to beat your dad?
1: It feels pretty good. feels feels better that my brother's not here and he didn't beat me.
0: <laughs> riding is in your family, yeah. How many? Talk to me about how, like, what you know about the heritage of uh, riding and jousting in your family.
1: Yeah, I just know that it, it really comes back to my grandfather, and he started jousting when he was in his teens. He collected, got collected by some of the farmers that were around town and um, just fell in love with it. And ever since then, he introduced it to his kids. It's definitely in our blood, that's for sure.
0: Marley's grandfather, Leon Enfield, passed away a few years ago, but he jousted until he was 75. Marley's dad says jousting was just part of the rhythm of daily life on their dairy farm.
1: You got up early, milked, and then went to the joust, and then you had to milk late when you got home. But that was their break. We didn't have a vacation. You went and rode. It's got to be a bittersweet feeling, I guess, to, to lose to your
0: daughter in competition. You're proud for her, but...
1: Uh... Not so much bittersweet for her. Disappointed that I didn't ride the way I expected. I I practiced three times this week and had a pretty good day. So when you ride good at home and then you come to the competition and you don't quite get it, it's... It's a, yeah, that's a
0: little bit tougher. She's going to have bragging rights at the dinner table for, for till the next meet, I guess. <laughs> As for the origins of jousting in Maryland, the story goes, it's been a popular pastime here ever since the second Lord Baltimore, Cecil Calvert, founded the colony back in 1634. Records show that jousting tournaments were popular local fundraisers to help rebuild Maryland churches after the Civil War. And in 1950 a dedicated group of enthusiasts got organized and founded the Maryland Jousting Tournament Association. Among its fans, it turns out, was one Henry J. Fowler. And uh, Mr. Fowler was a member of the Maryland House of Delegates. In 1962, he introduced a bill to name jousting as the official sport of the state. The bill passed by an overwhelming vote, presumably with huzzas all around and Governor J. Millard Tawes signed it into law. By the way, Maryland was the first state in the union to declare an official state sport. But there is more to this odd story of jousting in Maryland, a rabbit hole within a rabbit hole that's gonna take us to the hidden ruins of what was once a Gothic mansion on the banks of Lock Raven Reservoir in Baltimore County. It was the home of an absurdly wealthy and eccentric man, William Gilmore III, who's credited with hosting the first grand jousting tournament in Maryland back in 1840. You're listening to the Maryland Curiosity Bureau. More in a moment.
2: So, we're uh, near the Lock Raven Reservoir on the corner of Lock Raven Boulevard and Providence Road.
0: This is Morgan Hill. He's not a jouster, but he loves mountain biking. So much so, in fact, that he volunteers his time to help maintain the network of trails that run through the forests around Loch Raven Reservoir. And here, on this rainy, gothic Sunday evening, he's about to help us venture into the woods to find the secluded ruins of William Gilmore III's Glen Ellen estate.
2: Yeah, the area around the ruins is kind of like a spider web of trails, and you can easily get turned around and kind of come back where you start, so...
3: This makes me feel a little like we're in a Scooby-Doo episode.
0: This other guy with us is Cliff Murphy. Cliff is a former Maryland State folklorist, and he's along to give us some more background on the Gilmore family, their extravagant Scottish replica castle of yore, and their weird fascination with the romantic revival.
3: The Gilmore family was a very wealthy Uh, merchant family. The original Gilmore, my understanding, uh, was a Scottish immigrant and merchant. And by the early 1800s, they had amassed a pretty significant fortune. They were slaveholders, and so they developed plans to build a castle here, um, which was built, as my understanding, by slave labor.
0: This castle was built because of this family's enthusiasm for the Middle Ages and particularly the medieval era in Scotland. It's based on a Scottish castle of that era.
3: Yeah, and it's the first building like this to have been built in uh, the United States. My understanding is that it was, it had a huge ballroom, that it it was a place that a lot of very wealthy Marylanders and people from the Mid-Atlantic would come to have huge parties.
2: We're going to go west and then we're going to cut down towards the reservoir itself. The the, uh, ruins are very close to the water.
0: So as we're uh, making our way down this uh, rainy trail, surrounded by these trees and moss, why don't you go ahead and tell me, Cliff, about William Gilmore III and how it was that he became so obsessed with jousting.
3: The Gilmore family would travel periodically to Scotland, which I think for your average Marylander, in the early 1800s was not the norm. Um, So as a merchant family, they did a little bit of that traveling. They kept uh, tabs on their Scottish roots, Um, but they also, like a lot of people at the time, uh, were big fans of the book Ivanhoe uh, by Sir Walter Scott. That book really stirred up a lot of romanticism about that time period, about chivalry, about the customs of that age, and a number of very wealthy members of royal families in Scotland decided to put together a four-day revival of uh, medieval
0: sport and medieval heraldry. You're talking about like a Ren fair, but mm, 300 years ago.
3: Yes, and I guess that... This combination of, I think, personal ancestry, combined with the romantic writings of Sir Walter Scott, combined with, I don't know, people with a lot of time on their hands. And lots of expendable income, it sounds like. And lots of expendable income. And the horse culture of Maryland. I think this combination really drew Gilmore to get super excited about one factor of this medieval games
0: revival, which was ring jousting. Jousting, of course, was a functional combat tactic that was used, and it was rendered obsolete by guns and firearms and uh, became a sport. And eventually they were like, actually, a lot of people are getting hurt and impaled at doing this sport. Let's just joust at rings instead of each other.
3: Right. So Gilmore goes to this festival in Scotland, It rains for a couple of days and what makes me laugh today is that it's raining while we're doing this hike. And the writings about that event say that these people who had spent all this money and time on these elaborate suits of armor, kilts, you know, the whole thing, uh, were walking around with umbrellas. (laughs) Not (laughs) a medieval invention. (laughs) Yes, it was raining which is kind of funny. But, you know, Gilmore was undeterred and he came back to Maryland and really became the driver of jousting becoming this organized, identifiable, regularly occurring tournament sport.
0: William Gilmore, it sounds like, was the real kind of concert promoter of jousting. Because when he came back to Maryland, that's when he was all about, like, getting this castle built that we're looking for and holding his version of these kind of Ren revivals there.
3: Yeah, and I think that whether Gilmore is the person responsible or not, jousting as a cultural activity has evolved in its own way. And it has evolved in a way that is, I think much more down to earth. I'm not a medieval scholar, but certainly the, the wealth of European nobles was built on the backs of everyday people in Europe the feudal system. And, uh, certainly the Gilmore family, uh, in the 17 and 1800s literally did the same thing in building Glen Ellen castle. Um, and in maintaining,
0: their farms they were slaveholders and they built this uh, empire of theirs on the backs of slave labor
3: yeah and i think that um you know when i look at the neighborhoods of baltimore and if i look at what the layout of the original plantations were in this area and i look at the scottish names of so many of the developments and streets, these things are intertwined, right? So, this is a kind of romanticism where people who were wealthy slaveholders uh, tried to tie what they were doing to the perceived nobility of the Knights of the Round Table. And as ridiculous as that may sound, in 2022, uh, I think it was an intoxicating narrative for a lot of people for a long time. And
0: the rest of us are left to try to untie that knot. This trail is uh, getting uh, less and less like a trail and more and more like uh, just kind of a A mud slick that happens to go through uh, the forest here. We probably walked
2: like a couple miles down the fire road from where we entered. We're taking a single track trail now down towards the reservoir. It gets a little rooty and a little muddy and a little steep. So just be careful.
0: I just stepped in about a foot of water. Oh, there I go again. Oh, I can feel it coming immediately into my sock. So at this point, the trail has uh, brought us down a big hill right to the... uh, edge, the shore of Loch Raven Reservoir. There's the water. You can see it right through the trees there. You can hear the rain on it.
2: I think this is uh, one of the first remnants of some kind of road going to the castle. You see it's kind of grown over, it's covered in grass, but you could kind of see the, the man-made kind of uh, leveling going on right here.
0: So we've just walked around a bend in the trail and here's this weird kind of unlikely green meadow in what is otherwise a forest. Is this what we've been looking for? This is what we've been looking for.
2: Um, there's like a terrace just um, maybe 30 feet above us that was the spot where the Glen Ellyn Castle was. And we could see evidence still of the castle if we, as we walk up. I'm imagining this is probably like their lawn, right? This is probably like a, a manicured lawn. Right now there's trees growing back up. But the forest is taking it back over. But you can tell something was here just by looking at the, uh, the land.
0: You can kind of see a rectangle. This would have been the floor plan of the castle, I guess.
2: Yeah, and you can see some uh, stone foundation, I guess it would be, or a lower wall just to our left. And that's the last kind of remaining pieces of the castle.
0: It's amazing to think that this rubble has seen, God, who knows what kind of untold history. So I can only assume that somewhere on these grounds where we're standing now is where William Gilmore III came back and decided to start hosting jousting tournaments.
3: Yeah, and, you know, I think, uh, I think, I think like history, um, this place is hard to find. And uh, even when you get here, there's, there's a lot of missing information it's hard not to get kind of caught up in thinking about that time period you know these trees with all these vines and the beauty of the reservoir and of this landscape and thinking about that moment in time where you have people who are are building a beautiful thing and doing it in a terrible way you know uh with forced labor uh i think about you know this story of one of the gilmores who was a officer in the civil war for the confederacy coming through here to visit his family while this invasion of maryland was happening and when i think about that time period and the story that people told themselves about what they were doing and why they were doing it i can't help but wonder what our version of that is and 2022. You know, what the stories are that we tell ourselves to explain why we do certain things that we
0: know at our core to be wrong. Cliff Murphy, you've made this jousting story exponentially more complex. And uh, I guess I'm wondering now how the sort of obscene wealth and leisure of this family that brought this sport to Maryland in some organized way... How that version of jousting compares to the version of jousting that I went and saw yesterday in Kingsville, Maryland with my dad and sister, where it was like a couple dozen families with some pickups and trailers and horses who got together in a field and had some coolers and some tents and, you know, were putting their kids on horses with pool sticks and just, it was like a family get together and this is what they were doing instead of playing horseshoes.
3: Yeah, just, uh, I think, a very down-to-earth, community-driven activity and something that a lot of people take a lot of joy in. Um, There's certainly a lot of fun that people who do jousting have with the medieval traditions around it, you know, with talking about their steeds and and kind of giving some names to different riders. Um, But I think that all of the jousters that I've ever met are about the least pretentious people I've ever encountered. And I mean that as a, as a deep compliment. Um, and you know, that tradition I see as being very far removed from this historical space that we're in right now. You know, it's interesting to kind of visit with these spirits of the past and, um, and to try to make sense of them. I am glad that this tradition today drives a lot of, um, the giving that different churches do around the state to help out people in need, to keep community activities going. Most people that I know uh, who live here know that jousting is the state sport and they chuckle, uh, but I don't know how many people I know who have seen jousting who live in Maryland. And sometimes I wonder what to make of
0: all of that. It's a fascinating rabbit hole. And, you know, it, it does start off with a chuckle and, uh, you know, thanks to you guys and bringing me here to this place like this, it ends up with uh, certainly uh, something more profound to think about. I want, want to thank you for that. Thanks for, uh,
3: thanks for going on a hike. Yeah.
0: Big thanks this episode to folklorist Cliff Murphy, trail guide Morgan Hill, and the Maryland Jousting Tournament Association. Thanks also to my dad, who asked this week's question... Did you enjoy yourself? What did you learn? Did you have fun? First of all, yes, I had fun. Second, I learned an awful lot. I had no idea how neat the sport is. There was uh, the guy who came in second in the final joust was 64. Are you inclined to give this a try? How old are you now? I'm
3: 77, and I have no inclination whatsoever.
0: I'm glad you gave me an excuse to get out here and experience this uh, today. With you and with you, Becky, uh, it was it was a blast, and it was an excellent question. Thanks so much. Oh, my
3: pleasure. Anytime you need questions, feel free to ask.
0: All right, that is going to wrap it up for this episode of the Maryland Curiosity Bureau, an original production of WYPR in Baltimore. Got a question of your own? You can put me to work at wypr.org/slash curiosity. And where we go next is up to you. And uh, hey, if you like the show, do me a favor and drop a review on Apple podcasts or whatever app you listen on. Just a line or two. Your words really do help other curious listeners find out about the show. Appreciate you. For the Maryland Curiosity Bureau, I'm Aaron Henkin. Thanks for listening. Be in touch. And we'll do it again next week. The Maryland Curiosity Bureau is made possible with grant support from the Peel Center for Baltimore History and Architecture, online at thepeelcenter.org.